Right, I thought we'd come back in with James Brown because some of you, I think, probably are puzzled over the comparison between Bruno Mars and James Brown. But I don't know, the young energetic guy, complete with the uh, bouffant hairdo, knocking out the tune with a tight band behind him. Boy, it seemed pretty James Browny to me. And I think some were confused by the remarks made on last week's program that uh, the new movie, the new biopic about James Brown, Get On Up, which we gave, I think, a thumbs up to. And I'm standing by that. It's a pretty, pretty good flick. I recommend it. But I thought there was a simultaneous comedic side to James Brown that didn't quite get captured. And a lot of people, I think, just don't know what the hell I'm talking about. So, Ms. Merlin, if you will, please cue up the James Brown anti-drug spot. Hi, this is James Brown, soul brother number one, always fighting. Now I'm fighting for your life. I'm fighting for your life because if you use drugs, you better leave it alone. Drugs are contagious. They're killers. Every drug is a killer. Stay away from drugs. Drugs will take your life away. And if you want to live, stay away from drugs. Because they are super bad, super bad, super bad, super bad, super bad, super bad. Yeah, and if you can't hear that James Brown anti-drug spot, and not chuckle, then I, I guess you just don't, don't know what it is I'm talking about. And as such is the case, I have nothing else to recommend except that you go on YouTube and check out the James Brown interview on Sonia Live in L.A. If the antics of the new minister of the Superfunk does not make you laugh, well, then you just better check your pulse. That's all I got to say. It's possible you have expired and nobody noticed. Anyway, don't get me wrong. I'm knocked out by his music. I was on an entirely different level, amused by his antics as well. I'm extremely grateful that I did get to see him perform. I'm extremely grateful that I did get to see him perform live twice. Although I was not as lucky as the formal general manager of the station, Stephen Valentino, who did actually get to shake his hand after one of the performances. All right, we ended the last segment talking about some politicians. I want to continue to do that a little bit here in this segment. Starting with an item from Mental Floss, which I was quite unaware of. The magazine noted that long before Ronald Reagan and Arnold Schwarzenegger took office here in California, we had a knack for turning Hollywood actors into politicians. In 1965, George Murphy, a song and dance man on Broadway and the silver screen, got elected to represent our state in the United States Senate. When he arrived in Washington, the reported candy fiend had one major priority, to stuff his Senate desk with as many sweets as possible. At first, he apparently kept the goodies to himself, but when he moved to an aisle desk in the back of the Senate chamber, which was next to the room's most heavily used door, he began inviting other lawmakers to rummage through his stockpile. Desk number 95 quickly became a daily detour for senators on both sides of the chamber looking to satisfy their sweet tooth. Murphy lost his Senate seat in 1970, but politicos from both parties, in a rare episode of bipartisan agreement, decided they could unite to help keep the candy desk going. (laughs) Reportedly, the desk remained something of a Senate secret for another 20 years, and has since hosted a bevy of notable alumni. John McCain, in fact, was in charge of stocking the goods when he was a newbie senator in the late 1980s. 
And during Rick Santorum's tenure, Hershey's and other Pennsylvania confectioners donated nearly 300 pounds of sweets a year to quell our senator's candy crush. Reportedly today, it is Senator Mark Kirk of Illinois who keeps the desk full of Jelly Bellies, Snickers, and other treats from his home state. And speaking of California senators, I wanted to um, quote from a piece by Dan Moraine in the California Forum section of the Sacramento Bee from last July. Talking about a guy who served in the Senate with George Murphy, that would be Thomas Kekel, a guy who's pretty much forgotten today. But to quote from Dan Moraine, As California Republicans struggle to halt their decline, they might want to reconsider one whom they banished long ago, a U.S. senator who served in the grand old tradition of Earl Warren and Hiram Johnson. Thomas Kekel is not a name that gets mentioned much anymore. Some of today's leading politicians can't quite place him or they mispronounce his name. But 50 years ago last Wednesday, Kekel sat next to Martin Luther King Jr. as President Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act. As Senate Republican whip, Kekel led the drive for votes and the support of the landmark law to force the end of segregation, an issue he championed throughout his career. Of the 33 Republicans in the Senate, 27 voted for it, a far stronger support than among the Democrats. Times have changed. He was someone who was totally committed to the goal that everyone was created equal and ought to be treated that way, Leon Panetta told me by phone the other day. It was more than just politics for Tom Kekel. It was a gut feeling. Kekel gave Panetta his start in politics, hiring him in 1966. Panetta went on to serve briefly in the Nixon White House and 16 years in Congress, representing the Monterey Bay Area before becoming President Bill Clinton's chief of staff and President Barack Obama's defense secretary and CIA director. Dan Marine notes that Kekel was born in Anaheim, the son of a newspaper publisher who clashed with the Ku Klux Klan. He won an assembly seat in 1936 at age 26, and when Senator Richard Nixon became vice president in 1953, Earl Warren appointed Kekel to fill the post. He held the seat until 1968. Kekel is what you would call a moderate Republican, which I think today is something between an endangered species and an extinct species. Dan Moraine's piece noted that although he helped win the passage of the Civil Rights Act, he faced defeat in 1964 because back home, conservatives and the real estate industry promoted an initiative to repeal the Rumford Fair Housing Act, which sought to end housing discrimination. While that initiative did pass easily, the courts later struck it down. Kiko helped run New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller's 1964 presidential primary campaign against Senator Barry Goldwater. A UPI story quoted Kekel in May of 1964 as warning that the radical right was trying to seize the GOP, to which we would add (laughs) that seizure was complete within about a decade. Turns out Kekel did not endorse Barry Goldwater's run against LBJ. He did not endorse Nixon when he ran against Pat Brown in 62. And when George Murphy took his Senate run in 64 and Reagan took his gubernatorial run in 68, Tom Kekel didn't endorse either one of them. This led Republican operative Richard Vigiri, the pioneer of direct mail attacks, to go after Tom Kekel. Vigiri was trying to promote conservative Max Rafferty to defeat Kekel in the Republican primary, and he did so that night in 1968 when Bobby Kennedy was assassinated at the Ambassador Hotel. Jason Bezos, a Lafayette lawyer who's been fascinated by Kekel for 20 years, found a news clip from that night in which Walter Cronkite 
referred to that night's twin tragedies of Kennedy's assassination and Tom Keekle's defeat. In this piece, Dan Moraine talks about how far the Republicans have gone since those days in the 60s when the radical right sought to take over the party. He noted there was a Sacramento-based Tea Party fundraising pitch back in July that said, quote, This past week in Mississippi, we watched as the Republican establishment incumbent, Thad Cochran, deliberately and possibly illegally pandered to black liberal Democrats in order to steal the Republican primary election. Said Dan Moraine, imagine that, a Republican senator trying to appeal to African Americans. What was he thinking? Anyway, you can probably read the whole piece online if you like. It's pretty good. We want to thank Dan Moraine for reminding us of uh, a singular figure in the U.S. Senate. I guess this might be a good time to talk about politics and race relations, especially as, as regards what's been happening in Ferguson, Missouri, in the wake of the shooting of another black youth. This is unfortunately often the case with stories like this. You sort of back into them in the middle of them as they're raging about you. The first reports I got were that we were having local protests here in Sacramento, augmenting those going on in Missouri, about a supposed youth who was shot down by a police officer for jaywalking. The initial reports, according to the protesters, were that he had his hands up and was simply shot. But when this correspondent finally decided to, like, stop going the web and figure out what the heck happened, I discovered that there are conflicting reports, to say the least. Some eyewitnesses claim the man was shot with his hands in the air, but others were recorded on cell phones as saying the crazy guy rushed the cop. There seems to be some agreement that the six foot four inch 290-pound Michael Brown did indeed assault the police officer and tried to grab for his gun. I was impressed by some of the initial reports that the officer had sustained an orbital blowout fracture. It turns out that apparently was not the case. But during the altercation, apparently the officer's gun was reached for and discharged. Police and other witnesses say Brown taunted the officer and then did indeed rush him. Now, we certainly share the concern of locals in Missouri and people around the nation, in fact, observers from around the world, who note, as we've noted on this program before, that the amount of firepower available to police and the paramilitarization of our nation's police forces is, is a matter of concern. But we have to wonder where the truth lies in this case. If you go on the web, you can see footage of Michael Brown robbing a liquor store right before he was shot. He knocks the proprietor down, and when he gets up to argue with him, he charges at him again, exactly as he was described doing when he intercepted police bullets. I'm not saying this justifies the police shooting, but on the other hand, I'm not so sure it wasn't justified. If the police officer had indeed been punched in the face and had a guy grab at his gun and then turned around and ran at him again, you have to expect he would then take appropriate action and open fire. You just have to expect that. If that's what happened, investigations are going to go on, and there's a lot of people going to take a look at this very closely, I'm sure. But I would like to quote Juan Williams, who said in the Wall Street Journal, But if we're to stop angry clashes between police and poor black men, it's time to admit that thuggish behavior creates legitimate fear in every community. Just before his fatal encounter with Wilson, Brown was videotaped intimidating and brutalizing a store clerk during a robbery. When protesters finish demanding justice in Ferguson, they should confront 
quote, the drug dealers, the gangbangers, and the musicians and actors who glorify criminal behavior among black men, unquote. That said, Jamel Bowie said in Slate.com, the images that startled this nation were of the police, small-town cops clad in gas masks, Kevlar vests, and camouflage, riding mine-resistant armored cars and training their military-grade weapons on the mostly black crowds as if they were a population to occupy, not citizens to protect. Writing in the New York Times, Ross Dauhat said, SWAT teams may be needed in some American cities. But the use of military weapons has gotten way out of hand thanks to the ill-defined wars on drugs and terror. When cops start playing soldier, it's time to take their toys away. And writing in Time.com, Norm Stamper said, In my experience as Seattle's police chief, military gear proved counterproductive. In 1999, I sent cops in riot gear to confront and tear gas anti-globalization protesters, and it was the worst decision in my 34-year career. Not only does paramilitary policing alienate citizens and incite more violence, but it also has an insidious psychological effect on the police themselves who come to feel they're in control and they must maintain that control at all costs. And to that I want to add, from my own personal experience, the most frightening show of force, just raw force I've ever seen, was not in Russia, not in China, not in Burma, not in Africa. It was three miles from my house in Sacramento, when UC Davis and some private companies put on a genetically modified organism symposium a few years back, and fearing the kind of protests that uh, did appear in Seattle, as described by Chief Stamper, there was a completely out-of-control show of force by virtually every police agency in the greater Sacramento area. They had a chopper orbiting the downtown 24 hours a day for several days. Actually, for a couple days of that, it was two choppers in the air. The State Agricultural Building on L Street had, by my actual count, 57 riot-geared police officers lined up in front of it like, like the Gestapo. When I tried to just go home at the end of this, I was ordered to take an alternate route besides L Street. It was closed. I watched as a van pulled up and... Riot-geared officers, I don't know whether they were sheriffs, police, I don't know who they were. They came out, marched, they marched out and lined up seven across and five deep at one point. They stood with their clubs in their hand and shields to let everybody know that nobody, but nobody was going to go down that street. There were officers on horseback and there were officers, yes, in these bomb-proof military vehicles hanging on the outside like, you know, men going off to war. There was a reporter from KCBS walking about, and I took a look at her and said, have you ever seen anything like this? She said, no, I haven't. We certainly hope some good can come out of this young man's death. One of those good things we hope may come out of it is a reevaluation of the role of police in our society, what they're supposed to be doing. On the other hand... I would certainly call upon the black political leadership in this country to address what Juan Williams brings up. The fact that drug dealers, gangbangers, musicians, and actors glorify criminal behavior among black men. No good has come of that, and no good is going to come of that. All right, final item on politics for this segment. I, I want to harken back to the time when I was filling in over at Capitol Public Radio, during which time my producer... 
outraged at the idea that the actual host should have, have some input into who they'd be interviewing and how they'd be doing it, dumped on my lap Dan Lundgren to talk about a bill he was pushing on human trafficking. When I was asking, what's he talking about, human trafficking? The producer explained it to me as, well, you know, like trafficking in humans. To which she added, you know, women being forced into slavery and such, which, frankly, I was skeptical was happening in America. But I found out interviewing Mr. Lundgren that he was referring to pimping and prostitution, which they defined as human trafficking. Now, there is real, genuine concern about some of the human trafficking that does go on all over the world and probably here in the United States as well, but this was a bit of a misdirection play. And I want to compliment The Economist magazine for its consistent great reporting and the cover story they had in the August 9th issue about prostitution. The magazine noted that when it comes to prostitution, NIMBYs make common cause with Puritans who think that women selling sex are sinners, and also they're the do-gooders who think they are victims. The magazine noted that the reality is more nuanced. Some prostitutes do indeed suffer from trafficking, exploitation, or violence. Their abusers ought to end up in jail for their crimes. But for many, both male and female, sex work is just that, work. They note, this newspaper has never found it plausible that all prostitutes are victims. That fiction is becoming harder to sustain as much of the buying and selling of sex moves online. And the magazine takes a surprisingly broad view of the entire activity. It notes that the web has been a game changer. Noting, quote, buyers and sellers will find it easier to meet and make deals. New suppliers will enter a trade that is becoming safer and less tawdry. New customers will find their way to prostitutes since they can more easily find exactly the services they desire and confirm their quality. Pimps and madams should shudder. The internet will undermine their market-making power. But everyone else should cheer. Sex arranged online and sold from an apartment or hotel room is less bothersome for third parties than our brothels or red light districts. They went on to note governments should seize the moment to rethink their policies. Prohibition, whether partial or total, has been a predictable dud. It has singularly failed to stamp out the sex trade. Although prostitution is illegal everywhere in America except Nevada, Old figures put its value at $14 billion annually nationwide, and that is surely an underestimate. And because of the increased efficiency in how transactions are now taking place, thanks to the web, the economists note that sex workers charge an average of $260 an hour, which is down from the $340 an hour, which they would get back in 2006. Prices began dropping after the 2008 financial crisis and haven't rebounded because it's easier for prostitutes to find customers online and vice versa. Anyway, it's a surprisingly comprehensive and frank piece in The Economist, and I highly recommend, dear listener, that you, uh, you check it out. And we're overdue for a short break, so let's take one. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. we got plenty more. Don't go away.
streets for my 